Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. morning we're going to be in Mark 14 starting in verse 43 and the last time we looked at what we named walk the talk where the disciples um, three plus years with Jesus they amassed so much Bible knowledge and you know now they're expected to do something with it you know, and the same thing with us we could be in a even a Bible believing church and for 10 years and just keep accumulating Bible knowledge but you know, God expects us to do something with it. Otherwise, we become sedentary sheep in a spiritual sense. Today, the message is titled, The Failures Continue. Now, before you think I'm picking on the disciples or I, I would do anything different, because I wouldn't, I'd be in the same boat as them. Um, here's the blessing. The blessing is that in the book of Acts, the Bible uh, tells us that the disciples were victorious. They overcame their failures, and uh, they didn't have an impressive resume, but God used them to really turn the world upside down. So that's the blessing. I actually taught Acts, so if you, if you like, you can get it off the website for free. So this is really a success story because we can make the same applications with ourselves. You know, we fail, we mess up, we regret things in the past, but it doesn't matter. We can all have unimpressive resumes, and, and that's the cool thing about God. He actually often found the people with the unimpressive resumes, and he used them to glorify his name. So that's really neat. So I think we'll be blessed by that. Um, and it kind of reminds me, this whole thing about failure and trying to do better, it reminds me of the young professional who was hired as a, a CEO of a corporation that was failing. And he had this idea, you know, I don't want to fail and, and send this place into bankruptcy because it's not doing good. So he finds the oldest board member he could find. And he goes to the, the gentleman and he says, Sir, can you tell me what the secret to success is? You know, I, I want to do good for this company. And the, the man's terse reply was, Write decisions! So the young professional's taken back by that, and he, he, you know, he's trying to be polite. He goes, sir, I, I understand that. He goes, but how do I make those right decisions? And the man replies, experience. So he, he's a little shocked because it's like one word, one phrase answers, and he says to the man, listen, I really do appreciate your time, and, and I'm not trying to be uh, argumentative or difficult. He goes, but uh, how do I get that experience? And the man finally replies, wrong decisions. So it kind of goes with what we're talking about. Uh, but before we go into the scripture and we look at these failures and we identify in some way, I'm going to break this up into four segments on the arrest of Christ, right? So the context before we go into the scripture is that Jesus predicts the disciples' denial. After that, the disciples deny the denial of him. Talk about being in denial, you know what I'm saying? And then third, they actually fail in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll look at some of these denials as well as we go into it. So let's jump in in verse 43. It says, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Take him and lead him away safely. It's kind of odd. We'll talk about that. And as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to kiss him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. 
Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not take me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Now, remember, the Gospel of Mark is the shortest gospel. Mark is very, he's appealing to a Roman audience. This is what happened, and then we move on from here, and then this is what happened, and then we move on from here. But Matthew, Luke, and John give more background. They give more setting. So I'm going to use all four of the Gospels to really paint this picture for us. So this is the arrest of Christ. Now, Judas comes with, this is weird, the religious leader's enforcement arm, like the police or a paramilitary wing, uh, and they're the ones who answer to the religious system. It's almost as if there was a, a... Uh, an empire within an empire, as if the spiritual leaders were a vassal of Rome. And so they have a small army. When we look at the Bible, we look at Jesus and the disciples, and we look at the religious leaders, really we're supposed to shy away in Christianity from what the religious leaders have done, because they were corrupt, right? However, you can see in the last 2,000 years that Christianity, whether in the Middle Ages amassing powers and armies and navies, or even today, trying to amass power in getting cozy with the world leaders and, and watering down their doctrine, uh, you know, they kind of take more of an, a, a characteristic from the religious leaders than they do from Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He said, the Gentiles lord it over each other. They have this, this hierarchical power structure, but it shall not be with, with what you do with me. So just t- take that. Listen, I just want to paint this picture here. But what this tells me is that Judas understood the Lord's power, sort of. Brings a whole bunch of armed people to take Jesus. Well, what if he resists? We, I know he's powerful. I've seen him do amazing things. And this is quite remarkable because the world does this too. They have an idea of the power of Jesus. They see the answered prayers. They see, you know, let's just say that those that are walking the right way, they see lives turned around. However, they're not submitted to it. I think what's sadder is in the Christian community, those that see his power, see the changed lives, see the answered prayers, and they're not completely submitted to them, to him. And I'll talk about that a little bit as well. On the other hand, Judas didn't fully understand the extent of his power because he could have had 1,000, 10,000 armed people, and Jesus said, I could call down 12 angels. He raised the dead. How hard it would it be for him to stop all those men's hearts and have them fall to the ground? So he understood them, but he didn't fully understand his power. Now Judas signals the mob, and he basically says, it's the one who I kiss, Uh, he's the one, take him. I got a lot of questions after service. This is the cool thing about the Bible. The Bible gives so much detail. For those who are naysayers, oh, it's just stories, blah, blah, blah. If you're going to lie about something, you don't give detail, because details can be exposed. But the cool thing is, so much detail is given in the Gospels that I I get questions. And I have to tell you this, that I'm by far not the best Bible teacher, but I think I have the ability to take all the information and put the puzzle pieces together and kind of show you what's going on here. So that's what I'm going to do. Why did Jesus need to be pointed out? I'm going to digress from normal type of sermon and just answer some of these questions. Let me put on my law enforcement hat for a minute. (laughs) Well, I'll say this. Number one, in law enforcement, you don't want to arrest the wrong person. That's a whole big headache and bunch of problems. Number two, 
if you have somebody you're looking to arrest and they have followers around him, you don't want a riot to break out and cause more problems than, you know, again, more headaches. There was a detective who wrote a, a book called Cold Case Christianity, and he kind of took the, the Gospels and he used his detective skills to it's just to really prove the Bible true. So, you know, people from science backgrounds, from law enforcement, we can all look at the Bible in a different way and really paint this really nice picture for you because we say, yeah, that's what I do in my profession. I get it. A brother asked me too. He said, well, Jesus said, when I taught, you didn't take me, indicating they knew him. So why did Judas have to say, I'm going to kiss him? Because some knew him and some didn't. The religious leaders who weren't active in the effective arrest of Jesus did not do the dirty work. They had their officers do it. So the religious leaders would have known Jesus more because they were trying to pick out what they considered a false messiah than the officers that they sent to arrest him. Right? I want to read to you John 7, 45 through 47. It's the only scripture we're going to digress and, and use a supporting scripture. But this is, John's gospel, if you haven't read it, is so different from the others, but so amazing in how he just, he, how he just picks things that you, they're almost obscure, but they, they kind of paint this great picture. So John 7.45, then the officers, this was a different time, this was prior. The officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees, the religious leaders, and, and said, and they said to the officers, why have you not brought him? Why is he not under arrest? Why is he not bound? The officers, the officers answered, no man has ever spoken like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them and said, are you also deceived? Now, those officers probably got fired, and they had a new bunch of officers that they hired to take Jesus in the garden, and they were a little bit more compliant. One thing in law enforcement that I can say is, whether you're in the military or police, you take orders. But there is a code and there's laws that say, Sarge, I, I don't feel comfortable with this. You know, I think this is a, it's an unlawful order it's, order, it's unethical, it's maybe even illegal. I'm not going to do it. Very rare that it happens, but there is this code where you say, you know, these officers in John 7 said, we're not bringing him in. Nobody bound him because they understood that he was innocent and that he actually was the Messiah. So, you know, this is my perspective. Furthermore, Jesus drew a crowd, and for those that might have been 20, 30 feet away, they might have known vaguely who he was, but maybe they couldn't make out his physical distinguishing characteristics on his face. Remember, Isaiah tells us he wasn't particularly attractive. The form, the man, the, the form of the man that Jesus took was not a charismatic form, was not that people would say, what a handsome guy, and be completely in awe and distracted by his looks. That's why I believe God did it. The Bible doesn't say that's my take on it. So he, look, he would look like any other guy, maybe not particularly attractive, and uh, some would know who he was, but some wouldn't. Some wouldn't. Now, we love to answer questions in this church, and you know, growing up, I grew up in a denomination, and again, you hear these things. People, they don't want to come to church. They don't want to come to God. They don't like Christianity because if I go to church, they just want my money. That's a big one. Another one is they never answer my questions. I remember as a kid, if I was to ask a question, I probably would have got smacked in the back of the head by my parents. You don't ask questions. You just take it, you digest it, and you walk out the door. However, you know, it, that doesn't work today, and it really shouldn't work whether it's the Berean room or the women's devotion, men's devotion, even we're having a Q&A session 
at the couple's overnight. We have that every time, and it's just a blast. We block out an hour's time, but it usually goes for two hours because people just have so many questions. So it's really important to get those questions asked. In John 18.5, again, giving you a broader understanding of this, at some point, Judas probably didn't make his way to the head of the mob. Maybe the officers were in front of him. Jesus initiates a a conversation with the mob, and he says to them, who are you looking for? And they responded, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus responds in the Greek, ego eimi, which means I, I am. It's a redundancy. Basically, what he was saying was when Moses in Exodus 3, God was talking to him and telling him to lead the children of Israel, Moses says, well, who should I tell them sent, sent me? God, well, what is your name? He said, I am that I am. Yod, he, vav, he. And that was understood that if you said that, you were claiming to be God. So this is what Jesus says. Now, John records that they, they fall back. Now, I don't know if it's because they didn't expect him to say that. I don't know if it's because, remember in Genesis, God spoke everything into creation. I love that. God didn't, he didn't lift a finger. He just went, trees, you know, planets, right? Stars. Jesus says, I am. I don't know if his voice, when he did that, just had some power to knock them off. I'm going to say it probably was a love tap. You know, you're going to see me be crucified. But guys, understand what you're doing. And I don't think he did it to, if, if, he, if it was associated with his power, I don't think he did it to flex his muscles, his power. He never did that. But I think that was a, a gentle, merciful way to say, think about what you're doing and think about it afterwards when they don't find the body. So merciful Jesus is, was. You know, he's, he's just incredible. Matthew 26, Jesus still refers to Judas as a friend. He says in Luke 22, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And in Matthew 26, he calls Judas friend. Well, it takes a special type of twisted person to smile to your face and kiss you while they're driving the knife in your back, Judas. But it also takes a special type of person to love so much that you can still call somebody friend and you can still forgive them. I was at work this week and one of my uh, fellow employees said to me, hey, Joe D., what's more powerful? Now, he said this in light of the whole Paris attack and the shootings and sickness and 14 people dead, and he said, what's more powerful, love or hate? He was thinking hate because we had a discussion afterwards, and I said love. He goes, well, how do you figure that? I said, because take all the hate, take all the actions, all the murder, all the crime, all from the beginning of time. I said, Jesus packaged that, put it upon himself, and took that on the cross, shed his blood. I was able to give the gospel. You asked. <laughs> you know, I, I can't get in trouble for answering a question, can I? You know I'm going to go in that direction. And he was like, whoa. I'm like, yeah, love is more powerful than hate because Jesus took all those hateful acts it was a great question. I'm glad I was able to use it this morning. It was just, it was good. It was good teaching. Um, um, you know, just pray. When people are talking to you, just pray. Let the Lord give you the words. It's a great thing. Verse 47. Uh, verse 47. Through 49. And one of those, we know who it is, and I'm going to read it again, who stood by, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said, Have you come out as a robber, as against the robber with swords and clubs, to take me? I was with you daily in the temple teaching, and you did not take me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. 
So the second block out of four is interfering with the Lord's arrest. So Peter interferes with the Lord's arrest. If that happened in New Jersey, that would be New Jersey Penal Code 2C29-1, just saying, if you're interested. But let me just put this together by Gospels. Luke 22, the disciples ask if they should strike with the sword. They ask them in the garden. Peter decides, I'm not even going to wait for an answer. I'm just going to do it. Hey, look at me, I'm Zorro. You know, and he, he goes to strike the guy. Uh, the Bible tells us that, that it was Malchus whose ear was struck. Right? Peter was impulsive. But I'm going to talk about this next Sunday, about just the personality traits of each one of the disciples and how diverse they were. And it's funny because there's a little bit of some of these guys in all of us. And Peter, he's impulsive. But there's a little bit of Peter in all of us. It's kind of interesting. But Peter, I think, would have been, he would, should have stayed a fisherman because he wasn't a very good swordsman. He probably was aiming for the neck or the head, and he ends up only slicing, I guess, the fleshy part of the ear that came off. Peter was going to prove to the Lord that he was going to die for him as he boasted. Remember, Jesus said, you're going to deny me. Imagine that when God reveals, like, we don't do that. Yeah, we're so above the disciples or the children of Israel, and I say that facetiously. But imagine that when the Lord shows us something and we argue with him, and we do. You know, it would be better to just say, okay, Lord, how do I change it? But sometimes we have to go through these uh, struggles and machinations and, and different things, and we're going to prove to the Lord that what he revealed is not true, but, you know, we're going to see that Peter does actually flee, and everything the Lord says is true. But Peter was fighting spiritual battles with worldly weapons. He was acting in his flesh, which was going to be his undoing. When you go into a battle, you have to know what type of weapons to take. So if you're a soldier and you're in, in, you know, in the hot zone, you have your dragon scales and you have your helmet and you have your walkie-talkie, you have your rifle, you have your ammunition, you have your food, you have everything you need to go into combat. If you don't, you're a sitting duck and you're in trouble. However, you can't take those same weapons and use it to fight spiritual battles. What are you shooting at? You know, what lead bullets can't kill. The demonic realm, the things that are going on right in this world that we can't see but we know exists. Probably two books from now, I'm going to go into Ephesians about spiritual armor because that's a really great study. So Peter was, was taking his sword and fighting a battle that was not his to fight. And even if he could, he couldn't kill the demonic beings that were driving these men. Understand? The Apostle Paul said that they're blinded, that it's almost like spiritual cataracts. They're not seeing properly. So Peter actually was fighting, check this out, against Scripture established before he was born. This had to happen. And Peter is, is, is doing his best impression of Zorro. If we're not in God's will, we will be fighting against his word. Say that again. If we're not in God's will we may find ourselves fighting against his word. And that's a place we really don't want to be. Jesus rebukes the religious leaders, number one, for their sneakiness and deceit. He also rebukes Peter for his impetuousness and his fleshiness. In Matthew 26, Jesus says to Peter, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. A lot of expressions we get today come from the scripture. Am I my brother's keeper? He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And, and, and on and on. He also said, Jesus said to Peter, don't you realize now I could call 12 legions of angels to come and deal with this issue? Right? We read in the Old Testament that one angel was able to take out 
185,000 of the enemy army. Imagine what a legion could do. So Peter, relax. I got under control. Jesus tells both groups that the scripture must be fulfilled. And what it shows is that here Jesus is going to go to the cross. He's the one who's going to suffer, not Peter, not the religious leaders, not the officers. Peter's, or Jesus is going to the cross, and he is under control. Everybody else is on their worst behavior, but Jesus has it all under control, even to the point of putting Malchus's ear back together. And, and you know, again, in my mind, I imagine, well, how did this go down? I can just picture reaching out, just picture Jesus reaching out to Malchus as he's holding his ear, he's in pain, and Jesus takes his hand and he puts his hand over the ear and the blood stops flowing and he, and he takes his, his hand away and the ear is no stitches, no <laughs> staples, no scars, as if it never happened. And probably Jesus did it so that Peter wouldn't be on the cross next to him. You know what I'm saying? So no victim, no crime. <laughs> What crime? The, what are you talking about? His ear looks just fine. So you can just see Jesus in, in, in this, this gesture of love and, and all the gesture of having it all under control. He does this healing of Malchus's ear. Jesus says this. <laughs> who, who, he's going to be arrested. He's given orders. Jesus says, now let these go their way. And you put all the scripture together. right? He says, let, these, let the disciples go their way. Still very much in command, very much in control. So I would ask you this morning, brothers and sisters, what is your issue that this God that we serve can't do for you? What is it? What's the issue? What is it that you have come up with in 2015 that no one's got it? God says to Gabriel, oh, look at Bob's problem. Look at Joe's problem. I've never seen. What do we do? It's not going to happen. You see what I'm saying? Whatever you're going through this morning, this same God can handle your problem. If he could heal an ear and he could raise the dead and he could knock people down with his words, he can do amazing things for you. In verse 44, Judas says, Lead, I love this, Judas thinks he's in control. He says to the, the mob about Jesus, lead him away safely. Hey, I, I got this. Just don't hurt him. And, and we've gone through speculation of what was going through Judas's mind. What did he expect? What did he think was going to happen? But he asked them to lead Jesus away safely. And what Judas didn't realize is that Jesus was more in control than Judas was. And see, brothers and sisters, when, when church people, when Christians um, don't understand that God has it under control, what happens? They tend to move away from the Lord and take the control back. Right? Right? Jesus take the wheel? No, I'll take the wheel. I mean, if you could picture it in the front seat, they're having this, this tug of war. Jesus is like, all right, take the wheel again. All right, now you can have the wheel, God. Will you let me take it this time? Okay, let me just have a little one hand on the wheel. And this is what people do. And, and sadly, there's many in the church that don't fully trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior because they haven't given him the control. I had a humorous conversation about um, things even as a pastor and decisions that I've made where I would make decision after decision and it didn't come to anything. And I outran the Lord and he let me know it. And then he fixed it and it went flawlessly. And it's kind of funny because, okay, listen, transparency fishbowl up here. I have some control issues, but who doesn't in New Jersey? I mean, you can't live here if you don't have a little bit of control issues. 
But the cool thing is that he shows me in a loving way, you're getting ahead of yourself. You're getting ahead of me. And then I let him take it again, and, and he fixes it. And that's the beautiful thing. And sometimes it's a tug of war the more we have control issues our, our whole lives. But we have to trust the Lord. And sometimes I believe I'm trusting the Lord all the time, but my actions show something different. And I have to go back and I have to repent and say, you know what, Lord, you need to take it from here. Right? Listen, it's the Christian life, it's a process. You know, we, we never get to perfection on this side of the cross. And, and that's a fact. Uh, verse 50. Then they all, the disciples, as Jesus said, forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. So, so the third part is, I know, it's unique to Mark's gospel. So the third part is the disciples, the scattering of the disciples, which Jesus predicted. And in this, we, there's an unnamed young man who maybe hastily puts something on, and he gets into a scuffle, and he doesn't want to get, I guess he thinks he's going to get arrested, he runs away, and he runs away naked. We would call this in today's society TMI, too much information, okay? But I, well, I believe this, and a lot of Bible commentators believe that this was John Mark speaking about himself in like the third person. What I love about the Gospels is, and you'll see this in John, not the same instance, You'll see it in Luke, you'll see it in Matthew. They speak about themselves, sometimes in the third person, and it's almost as if they talk about their own failures. And it's, it's so transparent, isn't it, of the gospel writers? Definitely led of the Holy Spirit, but it's, it's transparency. I look at this as confession is good for the souls. Uh, and, and we see these personal accounts of the gospel writers embedded into their works of their biography of Jesus Christ and his life. I just love that about them. Transparency is, is really important. I'm going to purposely skip verses 53 through 65 for grouping purposes. I'm going to ask you to jump with me all the way to verse 66, and this is where we're going to end it. It says, Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. You see, Peter embellishes, you know. He just compounds the problem, as Peter usually does. He doesn't just say, no, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. Walk away. And he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again. So this is the first rooster crow. The, the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, surely you are one of them. For you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And a second time the rooster crowed. And Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Luke's gospel says he wept bitterly. That Greek word can be translated violently, like somebody who's retching or gagging. As you ever see that? Somebody's just so overcome with emotion, they're crying and they're, <gasps> they can't breathe and they're gagging. This is Peter. So let's take this apart. Fourth block, last block, Peter denies Jesus. Now, John 18 gives us more detail. Uh, from John's gospel, he says that it was Peter and an unnamed disciple, which most believe that John, again, was speaking about himself, um, removed. Uh, I would believe that too. Uh, they follow the taking of Jesus at a distance. So let's just say it's John. The Bible also tells us that John was known to the high priest 
So he gets Peter into the courtyard, and Peter ends up warming himself by the fire of the onlookers, the officers, and other people who were part of that party or the servants of the high priest. My speculation, my speculation is that not only his speech, and, and you know, if you're from, let me just say this, and I'm not saying which is better, I'm not going to get into the middle of this. If you, if you have like a heavy Brooklyn accent, and then you're talking to somebody from like South Jersey, Philly, it's kind of like me and my wife initially, we kind of rubbed each other to the point where it's, it's not that noticeable anymore. You know that somebody is from somewhere else. You know that they're not from where you're from. So even the simple nuances of the of the of the the personal interactions are recorded in the Bible. I love that. But I would look at this too and say that and there was other evidence that we would say I deed Peter. You know, it got him for people to look at Peter and say it was him. He's the suspect. But you can picture it's dark in the garden of Gethsemane, it's nighttime. This thing goes on through the morning and they, they build a fire, they're in the courtyard, it's a cooler part of the day, and they're trying to warm themselves. So if it's dark and there's a fire and you're warming yourself, what does the fire bring? Light. It brings light. So you could almost see now Peter's face and the fire is illuminated and people are starting to recognize him. My speculation, but I think it's, it's pretty good. Uh, two women, one was a relative of Malchus, the Bible tells us. And, and Peter gets identified. Now, Peter denies Jesus, and he, he, he doesn't just say, I don't know him. He goes into all this gyrations and, and mental you know, things, and, and uh, he makes it worse. So he denies Jesus. He probably did it out of fear. I mean, let's be honest. He probably denied Jesus out of fear. Regardless, he still denied the Lord. I would say today that anyone who is a, a weak Christian or a new Christian and they're in a group, maybe their own peer group, uh, and they're, they're teased or made fun of, sometimes they'll deny the Lord out of fear, out of peer pressure. It happens. Jesus, uh, Jesus is a forgiving God, though. He's definitely a forgiving God. We don't know what really happened with John at this point, and I'm going to throw out some speculation, and then we'll just get into the, the meat of this last section. We know initially the disciples were scattered, the Bible tells us that, but it was a long night, and it went into the morning. Did John later follow at a distance and stay far enough to appear to be a disinterested party, just an onlooker? I'm just, I just want to see what's going on here. Two, did um, John initially fulfill the Lord's words and then change his mind and advocate for the Lord since he was known for the high, to the high priest? Could he be more, more vociferous and say, no, you don't really understand. He's a good guy. It's not what you think. You know, you got the wrong guy. Whatever he says... Um, and not get in trouble again? We don't know. Could it be that Peter and John had this, this decision, if we split up, it'll be safer for us. You know, you know, if we split up, even if one of us gets caught, the other one will be free. Don't know. So let's go with what we do know. We know that Peter and John at some point were in the enemy's camp. Now, it's not just the Bible that speaks about this religious system being corrupt, but it's also secular sources and secular um, religious sources. I know that seems like a, um, an oxymoron, but it's not. Peter was not close to Jesus, but he was also not far from Jesus. Peter was in a place of spiritual and physical limbo. Right? Not completely far from Jesus, but not really close to Jesus. Peter was in the enemy's camp, which made him double-minded, and it caused him to compromise. Let's talk about ourselves. Sometimes we're in places that we don't belong. 
and it causes us to compromise too. Number one, compromising geographically. I personally, as your pastor, have freedom in Christ. I can go anywhere. I can go anywhere. I can do anything I want. The Bible tells me I have freedom in Christ. There's another law at play in 1 Corinthians 8 that says if I'm in a certain place that I don't belong and somebody who's a new believer or a weak believer sees me, it could freak them out. And it can cause them to leave the church. It can cause them to walk away from the Lord. We don't realize that our freedom has some constraints to it. And they really should be self-imposed. And why do we constrain ourselves? Because of love for other people. Right? Two, compromise of the heart. When we test our limits, it can cause our heart to change. And it can cause it to change subtly and gradually. And that can lead, 1 Timothy 4, to a seared conscience. And a seared conscience affects the mind. Now we're starting to mess up, and it's, you ever, you, ever, you ever struggle or wrestle with something in your mind? Well, if we say that we're Christians and we start doing things that test our heart, there can be a struggle there. It could lead to instability. It could lead to fear. It could lead to paranoia. Now, the Bible tells us of many instances of this. Number one, King Saul. Started out really good. Really messed up at the end. Samson started out as one of the Lord's judges, kept playing and dabbling with things that he didn't belong, had no business doing, and what happened to him? They, pulled, they plucked his eyes out at the end, and he lost all of his strength. Right? Not a place that we want to be. Three, so compromise geographically, compromise of the heart. Three, compromise actions, which usually follows the other two. This is something that we end up doing, and it's stupid, and we can't take it back. Now, if we've all been Christians long enough, listen, I'm not perfect. I, I can fall into some of these categories. I have in the past. And what we do is we end up, in essence, denying the Lord. So before we're too quick to pick on Peter, and I'm not, I'm just using him as an illustration, we need to look at our own selves and see where we've denied the Lord. A place where the Lord asked us to stand strong. A place where the Lord asked us to be a good witness. A place where the Lord had other people look at us and, and show Jesus, hopefully, so that they become attracted to Jesus, and we didn't. That's denying the Lord. Right? A word on our associations. I have unbelieving and worldly friends that I love dearly, and I want to bring them closer to the Lord. I don't want them to influence me away from the Lord. I want to influence them towards the Lord. Sometimes those, um, those friendships get strained. Sometimes I've had to cut ties. Right? Sometimes I've had to say no to doing things that they want to do, and a true friend will respect me for that. I've had that happen. You see, a true friend will honor your convictions. A true friend is not the type of person, this is really for newer believers, a true friend will not hang out with you and want to be the devil on the left shoulder. That the Holy Spirit's over here, constantly talking to you, working through things, and here's the devil on your left shoulder. You know, teasing you about it, mocking you, trying to, all the maturity you've developed, trying to make you immature, trying to get you in a uh, misery loves company because they've fallen, that they feel uncomfortable, and if they could bring you down to their level, then everybody's comfortable. That's not a true friend, right? Might be a Facebook friend, <laughs> you know. I have 5,983 Facebook friends. Well, maybe 23 are true friends, and the other 5,900 whatever, 43, 63, 60, whatever, I'm not doing math this morning. 
are really not. Okay? A true friend respects your convictions. And even though they may not agree and partake with you, they respect it and they honor you. That is a true friend. Keep that in mind. Verse 71, last two verses. Again, he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of who you speak. Imagine that. He denies the Lord. You would almost think, when you read the whole gospel, Peter was awesome. You know, he saw some awesome things. He was, he was brought up to see the transfiguration. I mean, the, the resurrections, all this stuff. He was brought in with James and John in Jesus' inner circle. And in, in a moment of fear and weakness, he denies the Lord. But Peter repented, and forgiveness is always available. I've read some articles to you about even teenagers over in Kurdistan or uh, Iraq and Syria that ISIS came in and said, convert to Islam or we'll cut your head off. And they didn't, and they lost their lives. They became martyrs. And I also read of a man who said he was a Christian, and they said, convert to Islam and we'll let you live. And he converted to Islam. And they welcomed him warmly and made a meal for him. No, they cut his head off anyway. And I like to believe, as the blade was going in, that he was in his mind or saying, Lord, I'm sorry, like Peter. I'm so sorry, just before he stepped into eternity. There is always forgiveness. Evil shows no mercy. It will trick you, it will deceive you, it will lie to you, and it's tied to this world and this world system. There is nothing here for us, as we can see. Things in the world are getting better, or getting worse, not better. And sometimes it's better and easier to bring people into the kingdom under these circumstances than there is when the economy's good and everybody's doing great. Jesus, God, who needs that? Life is good. Good for you, not for me. See, I'm going to make some money. That's how it works. Verse 72. And a second time the rooster crowed, and Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said to him, before the rooster crows, twice you will deny me three times. And he thought about it, and he wept. Again, let me, let's talk about the detail again. Well, how come it wasn't the first rooster crowing that got him to say it's a rooster right jesus said jesus said first of all it'd be two now my wife and i live next to awesome people years ago they had roosters <laughs> and they would crow so much that we didn't hear it after a while if we had company they'd say is that a rooster oh yeah that's the next door neighbors they heard it we didn't hear it our minds just canceled it out so the <laughs> again the detail of the bible they're living in a society where the roosters were everywhere However, it was the second crow. Maybe it was louder, maybe it was longer, maybe Peter took notice of it. The Bible also tells us, in, in um, I forget which gospel it is, that um, Jesus looked at him. Right? Jesus looked at him. I'm sorry, Luke 22. Jesus looked at Peter. Could you imagine what that was like when the Lord looks at Peter after, as he's denying Jesus Christ? Imagine the scene. In a brief sliver of time, it seemed like an eternity where Peter and the Lord's eyes met each other. And the Lord must have looked at Peter with anger and disappointment. No. He looked at him with love and encouragement. The Bible doesn't say that, but that's what I believe. He looked at him with the most loving look that he could ever imagine to strengthen Peter, causing Peter to break down. Eventually, Peter gets his head on straight, comes back to the Lord, and he's now victorious. And therein lies the hope and the promise available for all of us. Now let me just say this, because I, I feel like I need to step out of the message now and make a personal appeal to everybody here. Okay? This is what I want to do. 
There are people who have come forward here and disappeared. There are people that have struggled with different things and left the church. Somebody got high, somebody got drunk, somebody got involved in sexual sins, somebody got locked up, somebody got picked up, somebody got whatever, whatever, whatever. Some of you know those people. And I think it's appropriate to the message where Peter denies Jesus. He's convicted by what happens. And Jesus wants him to be re-strengthened and come back. Some have the idea, and we don't, we don't put this forth in this church, maybe some do, that if the pastors only knew what I did last night, if the pastors only knew what I did this weekend, if the pastors only knew that I can't break this, they wouldn't want me back there. I'm telling you that that is not true. Coming from me, I speak for Pastor Paul, Pastor Vinny, the elders and their wives. So if you know somebody who's come forward or has been part of this church and they messed up and they're ashamed, you tell them, either give them this CD or you tell them that they have a personal invitation for me to come back, no questions asked. Because that's what I think that the Lord would want. Amen? I want to leave you with an awesome quote from A.W. Tozer. I know I have a lot of Tozer fans in here. Let's hear it for Tozer. This is the power of God. This is what separates any gathering from just a mere social club. Tozer says this in experiencing the presence of God. The very nature of God's presence transcends human nature and is therefore beyond the grasp of mere human thought. When we come to the scriptures, we must remember that all the way through the Bible, we are taught what sometimes has come to be called as the transcendental view of the world. It's also transformative. It changes, changes us. The word transcendental means a dozen things in philosophy, but what I mean by it is that somewhere there is an absolute. Somewhere there is that which is not relative. It is fixed and final and can have no beginning and no end. It transcends life time, space, matter, motion, law, and all of these things, and we call that one God. When Christians talk about him, we call him our Father in heaven. Our job in life is not to deny, and I would say not to deny him, but to affirm, and regardless of how it sounds to some, we affirm that there is another world above this world of which this world is the shadow. We're living in shadows, brothers and sisters. If you cut me, I bleed, but it's a shadow. It's not reality. It's not eternity. It's just a bunch of molecules that are arranged that made my body. But what makes me, me, and you, you, is the spirit that's eternal inside of you. These bodies are bodies of death. The outward man is, is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed day by day and unto eternity. It talks about shadows. A world where there, there is a world. God's world where there's a throne and on that throne there is a God ruling his universe. The mystical element recognizing this transcendence is a mystical thing. By the word mystical, I mean nothing of the esoteric religion of the East. I mean that there is such a thing as a Christian knowing God and meeting God for himself. That we can press our way into, check this out, we can press our way into the sanctuary of the Holy of Holies. God's heaven. Come before my throne, he says in Hebrews 4. And with our hearts, we can meet, know, feel, sense, and experience God 
in a manner more wonderful than any man or woman can experience any human thing or any human being. All the experiences that we have in this life that bring us pleasure, I hate to tell you, it's reduced down to a few brain chemicals in the brain with synapses going back and forth. Feels good. You think you're feeling it on different parts of the body, but it's in the brain. The brain will eventually perish, but the spirit will live forever. These things are temporary. But it is what is taught here, and this is basic to Christianity. To deny the presence and existence of a transcendental world of which God is the head and the creator and the Lord, and to deny the mystical element of Christianity, you might as well close your Bible and go for a walk because you will never understand it. If Christianity is reduced to a doctrine that can be explained with no intuitive knowledge, no direct knowledge of the heart of God, then where is the wonder of it? I would not give a dime to support a teaching that denied the presence of God and in his universe and the fact that the human heart can know God through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. This wasn't taught to the disciples, this was caught. The disciples caught it. All the teaching in three plus years still made them flee the Lord and deny him. It had to be caught before they really got it and they were on fire and they turned the world around. And brothers and sisters, this is, we need to inspire people. We have a society where leadership can't make decision in the, in the federal government, in, in the church sometimes. We need to inspire people to know that this is real and it is tangible. Like I said before, how is it that terrorists have more passion for a lie than some Christians have for the truth? It doesn't make any sense. This has to be caught. This has to be inspired, and it's, it's sent to other people. It's, it's not only taught, but it's lived out. And, and brothers and sisters, if you know anybody who's struggling, bring them back. Get them back in here. Inspire them. Tell them that they're loved, that God, just like Peter, God wants to give them another chance. Yes, we fall down. I fall down. I have to repent every day, and I'm your pastor. Every day I have to go before the Lord and repent and ask for forgiveness. Amen? Amen? So... Take these words with you as we go forth and uh, let's make a difference in this world. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m., and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.